Please open your Bibles if you have one to Hebrews chapter 8. You'll find the notes in this morning's bulletin. You'll find the text in the back of the notes. If you don't have a Bible, and uh, I'll give you a brief idea of where we're going this Sunday, next Sunday, and in the Sundays to come, God willing. We just completed our study of James and Psalm 119. Um, on the other side of Resurrection Sunday, we plan to spend about five or six weeks in the book of Habakkuk before beginning a much longer study in the Gospel of John. Um, but this morning, uh, and next Sunday morning, and in part even on Good Friday, I want to consider the New Covenant. We celebrate the inauguration of the New Covenant every Sunday morning when we celebrate the Lord's table and we read our Lord's words. This, he says, is the cup that is poured out for you, the New Covenant in my blood. Well, what exactly is that? Well, in Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews examines and gives us an answer to that question. So let's begin by reading Hebrews 8, 6 through 13, and we'll have a word of prayer. <clears throat> but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would understand the depths and the magnitude of your goodness and grace towards us, that we might comprehend how much more excellent, how much better this new covenant is for those of us who are trusting in your son, how much grace has been lavished upon us, Lord, that we might marvel and rejoice and respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. So the author of Hebrews is considering one of the dominant themes in the book of Hebrews is better. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the angels. His sacrifice is better than the Levitic sacrifices. His priesthood is better. And we see that better language here in, in spades. The author is at pains to make clear Christ's priesthood and Christ's sacrifice inaugurating his covenant provides for a better covenant. And I'd like us to consider in what way is the new covenant better? 
What is new about it? And I would challenge that even, even before I came into this study this week, having some potentially simplistic answers. Perhaps you might answer that, well, the new covenant is grace and the old covenant was law. The new covenant is faith. The old covenant was works. The author of Hebrews doesn't give that answer here. I was, I was surprised and challenged when I, when I actually walked through this. And so I'd like to walk through this this morning. The author of Hebrews considers this new covenant text. There's only one passage in the Old Testament that names new covenant. I think a number of passages speak of it. The passage in Jeremiah that's quoted extensively here is the one passage I'm aware of that actually names new covenant. The author of Hebrews wants to look at that passage to help his readers comprehend the superiority of the new covenant. In the argument of the book of Hebrews, he's arguing this to stop these Christians from returning to the temple worship, from returning to ongoing sacrifices and animals, to returning to an inferior priesthood. That may not be the danger for us, but I still think there's much here for us to understand and profit from. So let's begin the greatness of the new covenant by quickly looking at its foundation, its foundation, the foundation of the new covenant. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And, and really quickly, and this is sort of summarizing the argument of Hebrews up to this point, it has a better mediator. It has a better mediator. And a mediator is someone who goes between. So you think of this back at Sinai where the people of Israel entered into a covenant with God. They said, you go talk to God, we'll die. If we have to go talk to God, we'll die. So you go talk to him. So Moses goes up on the mountain and he talks to God and he comes back down the mountain with the tablets of stone. He goes between the two. He mediates a covenant. Well, Christ mediates a covenant in one very real sense, being suspended off the ground on the cross, pictures what he's doing, in fact, going between man and God. He mediates a better covenant. He's a better mediator. And we don't have time to look through this, but you could just read through these passages where in Hebrews 3, extensively, Christ is superior to Moses. Moses is great. Nothing against Moses. Christ is better. Most recently in Hebrews, starting in chapter uh, 4.14, all the way up through here, he's extensively considering that Christ's priesthood is superior to Levi's. The tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron, were given a priesthood. And Christ, not of that tribe, has a priesthood, the author of Hebrews argues, according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because Aaron's father, Abraham, pays tithes to Melchizedek. Christ has a superior priesthood. He's a superior prophet. And now the point is he brings in a superior covenant. And the statement is that it's enacted upon, it's built upon, here's your blank, better promises. And then he begins the, the quotation of Jeremiah 31. So turn briefly back to Jeremiah 31. Let's look at this in its original context. In the book of Jeremiah, largely a book of judgment and condemnation and woes, he's called a weeping prophet, much of Jeremiah's ministry is telling the people of Israel, don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. God has given him you into his hands. Don't, don't fight him. 
You're not going to win. The Lord will not defend you. He will not protect you. You're going into exile. Buckle up, get ready, prepare for it. In a book that is difficult and it ends with the, what appears to be the near ending of the kingly line, Zedekiah's eyes are gouged out after his sons are killed in front of him. There's this brief oasis in Jeremiah, chapters 30 and 31, where hope is given. God wants his people to know this judgment is not the final word. As strict and as severe and as extreme as it is, it's not the final word. And so speaking to these people, he promises that he will regather them. He promises them that there is a future for them. Let's begin by looking at this passage um, in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. And you'll, and you'll note, this is the passage quoted by the author of Hebrews. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, in its original context, and you can see this clearly, this is a covenant made to the house of Israel. And we are not the house of Israel. If you keep on reading, you'll see that in, in combination with this new covenant will be a restoration of the land, be a reestablishment of the nation. Look at, look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. So this new covenant nationally, I think, is still future for the nation of Israel. I think in our study of Zechariah, we, we see on the day in their trouble when the Lord pours out a spirit of mercy and they, they look upon me, upon him whom they've pierced, and nationally they mourn and they repent and they are converted. And one of the amazing things for us Gentiles, the church, you can turn back to Hebrews 8, is that being grafted into that root of these promises, we actually partake of the new covenant first. It turns to us. So its foundation is a superior mediator and superior promises. That's its foundation. I'm just moving very quickly, so I want to actually look at the treatment of Jeremiah 31, which then next brings up the failure of the old covenant. This text is a text in contrast, not like this is the way the old covenant worked. Here's the way the new covenant works, which is, again, why I want you to consider what's different, what's new about the new covenant. So first, the failure of the old covenant. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That's striking. It sounds as though the author of Hebrews is finding fault with the old covenant. And in a sense, he is. In a sense, he is. And I think sometimes when we try to think through the old versus new covenant, we can all too easily turn it into, well, the old covenant was bad. Laws bad. Rules are bad. Grace is good. Works are bad. Faith is good. That's not the way this is cast. 
That's not the way this is cast. The fault of the Mosaic Covenant, your first point here, was actually the fault of the people. It's not Old Covenant bad, it's Old Covenant people bad, just like us. Look at the way he turns this. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, sounds like he's making a fault with a covenant, but then look at verse 8, for he finds fault with them. He's making it clear the fault with the old covenant is really the fault with the old covenant people. Don't, don't go blaming and slandering the old covenant. I mean, just remember our year study of Psalm 119. What is David or whoever the author is praising and celebrating, if not the law of Moses and the former and the latter prophets? Don't, don't go finding fault as if the old covenant were bad. The problem with the old covenant is the fault of the old covenant people. In fact, and this was part of what was so surprising to me in my study of this, the author of Hebrews says some remarkably positive things about the Old Covenant. Turn back to Hebrews 4. Turn back to Hebrews 4. The author of Hebrews, if you, if you know what the word gospel means, what's, what does gospel mean? How would you translate that to English? You put that into simple English. Gospel means good news. Amen. Okay, keep that in mind. Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, gospel, came to us just as to them. The distinction between the Old and the New Covenant is not we get gospel, they didn't have gospel. The author of Hebrews is speaking of the Mosaic law and saying in some sense you could rightly call it good news, gospel. He, he does it again in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. So twice, in Hebrews 4, 2 and in Hebrews 4, 6, the author of Hebrews can speak of continuity. Good news was spoken to us just as to them. That's not the distinction. The difference between the new and the old covenant is not one is good news and one is bad news. That's not it at all. The Mosaic law, here's your blank, was gracious and good news. I think the new covenant is more gracious and better news, but it's not ungracious. In John chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, John, don't need to say the author of John, John says... Jesus came, grace replacing grace. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the law as a grace. God did not owe the people of Israel the law. He wasn't obligated to give it to them. It was gracious of him to give it to them. And think about what occurs at Sinai, where they receive the law. Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And God begins to speak about himself. He has not spoken about himself, to my knowledge, in the Bible up to that point. And he starts revealing with words who he is. He revealed through actions who he was to Abraham and others. But he begins to speak about himself. And what's he say? The Lord, the Lord, a lawgiver. He says, the Lord, the Lord, Exodus 34, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's at the giving of the law. That's after the giving of the law, when the people worshipped a golden calf and they should have all died because of Moses' intercession. He forgives them. Don't, don't think the law doesn't have grace. Don't think the law doesn't have good news. It does. This is part of the reason why the author of Psalm 19 can say, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous statutes. 
We slander the law when we make the new covenant is good. The old covenant was bad. No, it's the old covenant people were bad. Denigrate them, denigrate us. The Mosaic law was gracious and shockingly, you can speak of it as good news, as gospel in some sense. You see the point of continuity the author of Hebrews is making. In fact, go back to Hebrews 4. There's continuity. That's part of the argument of Hebrews. We want to learn from their example of the Old Testament. And we can't learn from their example if they're completely dissimilar in their experience to us. Let's read what the problem was. In fact, I want to go back a little further, back to 3.7. He's going to quote Psalm 95. Psalm 95 he's going to deal with for about a chapter and a half. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Hebrews 3.7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of testing, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, there's a picture of the failure of the people under the Old Covenant. That's the same failure we're going to see here. A little further, verse 16 spells it out clearly. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but with those who were disobedient? And before you say, see, it's, it's works. They didn't do the works. Verse 19. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Their works prove their unbelief. But the Mosaic law is similar to the new covenant in that it's received by faith. It's not works versus faith. They were unable to enter because of unbelief, which is what enables the author of Hebrews in the next verse to say, don't be like them. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For, and here's the similarity, good news came to us as just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. The Mosaic law was to be rightly received and responded to by faith. And the people's lack of faith and their unbelief as evidence in their grumbling and their complaining, because our actions always reveal what we believe, is why they were not able to enter the promised land. So the, the distinction between the old covenant and the new is not works versus faith, grace versus law. That's not where we see the distinction. But this example of a people who appeared to experience a salvation, and this is what can be so terrifying. I mean, imagine this. These people, to some degree, believed God. They put the blood on the doorposts. They, they gathered up their, their bread without leaven. They got up and they left. And yes, they grumbled at the Red Sea, but they, they walked through the Red Sea. And they ate the manna. And they drank the water from the rock. And at Sinai, the ground trembled and they heard the voice of God like thunder and a thick darkness and a cloud come down upon the mountain. 
And they experienced God's gracious, lavish forgiveness when they all should have been wiped out for worshiping the golden calf. And all these people who experienced so much grace and saw so many wonders, how many of them entered into anything? Two of them. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb. And the rest of them died in the wilderness. That's what Psalm 95 is referencing. Don't be like them, he says. Make sure you don't seem to have fallen short. Yes, to be sure, the generation that left Egypt appeared to have been saved from something, but they were never saved to anything. And all but two of them died in the wilderness. Okay? It's the blank here. The people were not inwardly changed. The people were not inwardly changed. Turn, turn to one other passage. Turn to Deuteronomy 10. Um, the old covenant, I'm going to argue, uh, anticipates its weakness. The old covenant anticipates its weakness and limitations. And even in the books of Moses, we, we see it looking forward, Deuteronomy 10, to something greater, something needed. Moses is not unaware of the limitations of the people under this covenant. So Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You are above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And you're reading through Deuteronomy. How on earth do I obey the command of verse 16? What power do I have to reshape my heart, to cut it, to cleanse it, And Moses leaves this demand hanging for 20 chapters. Hanging. I I think the right response to that, my guess would be something like, I can't do that, Lord, help. And I think the Pharisees and others thought, a little bit of hard work, and we can stand on the edges a little bit. I I think we can do this. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. In order for these people to faithfully adhere under the covenant, they were going to need... A circumcised and new heart. And in Deuteronomy 30, actually look at 29.4. Then we'll go to 30. 29.4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What are you going to need to adhere to this covenant? You're going to need a circumcised or a new heart. And at the end of Moses' life, when the children of those who died in the wilderness are grown and ready to enter the promised land, he says, to this day, to this day, God's not given you a heart to fear him. Now look at verse th- chapter 30. Moses is aware of the law covenant experiment 
is going to end in disaster as the people break, 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 and are finally judged for breaking it. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. I mean, it's stunning. Moses understands here, this is going to end in exile and scattering. Moses does not think the law is going to bring them all the way home. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. What the people needed to keep the law, to be faithful to God, what was demanded in chapter 10, Moses says, many days in the future, after you've been scattered, kicked out for your faithlessness, then, in this later date, the Lord your God will do for you what you could not do for yourself. The people were not inwardly renewed. The people are not inwardly renewed. Turning back to the Hebrews chapter 8 and the failure of the covenant. That was the problem. The people inwardly were corrupt, wicked. And so you see these patterns in the Old Testament. The people stray from God. God brings in discipline. After a while, they cry out for help. And as soon as the Lord gives them grace, he gives them help. As soon as that happens, their hearts go after other idols and other gods again. And the cycle goes over and over and over and over and over until the 10 northern tribes are taken away in judgment. And even then, the two southern tribes don't learn anything. They just conclude we must have been better than them. And then Nebuchadnezzar shows up and Jeremiah has this awful, painful ministry of telling his countrymen, you're going down, stop fighting. You're going to be judged. You're going into exile, just as Moses predicted. Now, next point. Speaking of a new covenant makes the first obsolete. Speaking of a new covenant makes the first obsolete. So it's a remarkable point. The author of Hebrews says there has to be something faulty with the old covenant because the very act of naming a new covenant in some sense indicts the old covenant. He makes that point both here and in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And you know what this is like. You've got the newest iPhone or Android phone, and then... They announce they're coming out with the iPhone 14, and immediately, as soon as that happens, even though it hasn't been released yet, the very act of naming the new phone, your cutting-edge, bleeding-edge phone with three cameras all of a sudden becomes what? Obsolete. Well, they won't be releasing the new phone until the fall, but they've made the announcement, and so you, all of a sudden, my phone is no longer up to date. Well, the same thing is happening here. 1,400 years before Christ comes to offer a new covenant. Actually, that's not right. 400 years from Jeremiah. 400 years 
it's announced by Jeremiah. And the very act of announcing a new covenant does what? It makes it crystal clear. If you couldn't get it from Deuteronomy 30, you ought to know by reading Jeremiah 31, this old covenant is not the final way God will relate to his people. It's, it's not going to get us home. The very act of naming a new covenant makes the old covenant in principle obsolete. So we, we know there's a fault with it. And again, this point for his readers, which is less of an issue for us, is their temptation to return to the Mosaic law. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't you get, it's not just a new covenant teaching. It's clear in the Old Testament. The very fact that Jeremiah has to name, there's going to be a new covenant. means you don't want to cling to the old one. And point C, he points out and demonstrates the weakness of the Mosaic law. I've, I've told you already that the problem of Mosaic law was the people it regulated, not the law itself. And we see that here clearly. He names their problem. And the problem isn't works versus faith, law versus grace. The problem is the problem is the people did not persevere in faith and obedience. We saw that. We see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They started out with some obedience. They started out with some level of faith. It took some level of faith to put the blood on the doorpost. And yet they grumbled and fell away, and therefore God showed no concern for them. The people did not persevere in faith. Therefore, the Lord rejected them. They died in the wilderness. That word there translated, therefore I showed no concern for them. Same word used back in chapter 2. Let us not neglect so great a salvation. God neglected them. He, he gave them over to themselves. He gave them over to their oppressors. He left them alone because they did not persevere. That, that was the fault of the old covenant. People, they did not persevere in it. They did not persevere in it. People did not persevere in faith and obedience. Therefore, the Lord rejected them. And the reason they didn't persevere in faith and obedience is they were never inwardly changed. Yes, there were individual Jews who were inwardly changed. Jeremiah himself is an example. But nationally, no. Nationally, the people were stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-hearted. Which then brings us finally to the greatness of the new covenant. So, so what is different? If, if I'm saying the difference is not law, grace, works, faith, then what is the difference? What makes the new covenant new? What makes it so much better? What makes it so much more excellent? Well, he tells us plainly. For this, verse 10, is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I think I'd break this down into three or four points. I won't know three, but here's the first. What makes this covenant so great is that all covenant members will receive an internal writing of God's law. This again proves the point that the, the new covenant's not better because we got rid of law. The new covenant includes law, written on your heart. It's not as though God said law didn't work, we're doing something else. The very first thing that makes the new covenant new is an application of law. I'll put my law on their minds and write them on their hearts. 
The difference is external versus internal. You know, if a beetle has an exoskeleton, it's, it's bone structures on the outside. That's one way of helping to look at the distinction. The Mosaic law was external, written on stone tablets. The new covenant is written on heart tablets. It's internal. It's an endoskeleton. There is a legitimate distinction. All covenant members receive an internal writing of God's law. Put in their minds, and you can put your blank here, I think that means understanding. And written on their hearts, which I think speaks to the will. Because that was what the people didn't do. They didn't persevere. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart. They, they, were, they resisted, and they grumbled, and they complained. And, and God's going to solve that problem not by removing the requirement of perseverance. Get, get this. The new covenant does not remove the requirement of perseverance. We all, if we hope to go to heaven, must persevere to the end. Jesus is clear on that. The old covenant gave you no power for perseverance. The new covenant gives you a changed heart and a changed mind so that you will persevere. As we sing, he will hold me fast. And he does so by giving you a mind and a heart to understand, to enjoy, and to want to perform, to will what God requires. He still has law. We're not under the Mosaic law, but 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes it clear. We're not under the law, but we're not without law. We're under the law of Christ. God still has requirements, commandments for his people. And it should spring up from within us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our affections, in our desires. And this will cause us to persevere. We speak of this in other places in the New Testament as regeneration or the new birth. Or Ezekiel speaks of taking a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. Deuteronomy, I think, calls it a circumcised heart. And here, God overwrites the sinfulness and the depravity and the wickedness in our hearts with his law. So that welling up from within, not externally forced upon us, but coming up from our inner man, is delight and desire to please the Lord. That, that's... The first wonderful, new, great thing of the new covenant. Every covenant member receives an internal writing of God's law, put in their minds and written on their hearts. Now, individual Jews, I think this happened to, but nationally, never. Not to this day. And the result here, their faithful perseverance, their faithful perseverance and understand how he casts this. What was the problem of the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant people did not continue. They did not persevere. He says it right there. I took them by the hand, not like the covenant I made, for they did not continue in my covenant. So we're to understand this internal writing of the law solves that problem. It's not as though, and again, I want to make this clear, it's not as though God said, well, I'm no longer to require people to continue in my covenant. You have to continue believing. You, you have to continue trusting. The solution is not, don't worry, I won't require perseverance anymore. The solution is I will enable, I will transform, I will change so that my people will persevere. That's what makes the new covenant new. Secondly, consequently, as a result of this, they all will know God. They all will know God. God. 
He goes on to make this clear. I'll put my law on their minds, write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is another remarkable statement. Knowing God, he being your God, you being his people, speaks of relationship, knowledge, rightly ordered with him. Think of it by contrast. What, what opens up the book of Judges to explain the terrible cycle of apostasy and rebuke and correction is Judges 2.10. All that generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Knowing the Lord is another way of speaking of salvation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. So by virtue of understanding, delighting in, desiring to obey what God requires of you, you then know God and relate rightly to him. And this will be true of every member of the covenant. Notice the emphatic language. No, sorry, the emphatic language. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Every covenant member will know the Lord. This is another contrast. By virtue of circumcision, Israelites were members of the covenant. The people who died in the wilderness were Mosaic covenant members who failed to persevere and they perished. But they were members of that covenant and they went to hell in their unbelief and in their faithlessness. The new covenant, James White has said, is perfectly salvific. All of its members, each and every one of them, from the greatest to the least, knows God, is rightly related to God, and will persevere. Consequently, they all know God. Every covenant member will know the Lord. No members of the new covenant will be lost. Is that great passage from John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So keep, keep in mind again, we do believe in eternal security. You cannot lose your salvation, but it's not because God stopped requiring perseverance. It's because the new covenant, in addition to forgiveness, brings the promise of perseverance through a renewed mind, through a transformed heart. Other passages in the New Testament say through his spirit being in us, through that inner transformation, we are enabled, caused to persevere in faith. That's what's new about the new covenant. That's what our security is based upon. He will hold me fast. He will keep me believing. He will shepherd me when I stray. Every covenant member will know the Lord. No members of the new covenant will be lost. The result here, reconciliation and relationship. Reconciliation and relationship. And just consider this. Part of why I want to look at this is what is Jesus doing on the cross? And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant purchased or bought with my blood. Jesus is buying the new covenant on the cross. He is obtaining this. What is he obtaining? He's obtaining the forgiveness of sins. Yes, amen. And more. He's obtaining new hearts with law of God written on it. He's obtaining knowing God from the least to the greatest. 
He's obtaining all of these blessings. The forgiveness of your sins removes God's wrath and anger at you. But understand this, you're not reconciled with God. You're not in a right relationship with God. If in that forgiveness, you still resent his right to rule. You still hate his law. You still hate his character. The gospel is not, you can go on resenting God's claim on you and he'll forgive you. The gospel is, if you will turn, confess, grieve, mourn, he will give you a new heart. He will cause you to love his statues. He'll cause you to walk in them. He will forgive you. You're not rightly related to God until you're gladly and willingly his subject, his slave, his servant, until his will is your delight. The new covenant brings all of that, not just the forgiveness of sins, but the transformation of heart and mind. We talk about personal relationship. Well, there's another new thing here. The priests would go in to the temple. They'd offer the sacrifices. They'd sprinkle the blood. The high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies. And so in some sense, every normal Israelite had a mediated relationship with God, even by the earthly priesthood. And there's a sense in which under the Mosaic law, knowing God and approaching God was a privilege of the elite few. I mean, everyone could approach, but only so far. The very courts around the temple made that clear. It's the court of the Gentiles. You can approach, you can draw near, but only this far. Well, here's the court of the women and children. You can come a little closer. Here's the court of the men. You can draw closer still. Here's the holy place where the priests serve. You can draw closer still. And then once a year, on one day, for just a few minutes, the high priest could approach all the way in. This is a radical statement of personal relationship and knowledge. They shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Not just an elite few, an aristocracy of religious privilege, but every member of the new covenant gets to call God Father gets to approach the throne. I mean, it's amazing what we do here on Sundays when we pray. Think of how much time and energy the Israelites had to put into the sacrificial system, the washings, the oblations, the prayers, the rites, just to draw sort of close to God. And Hebrews says, we boldly approach the throne of grace. That's blessings of the new covenant. A new heart, a new mind, complete relationship, rightly relating with God. And all of that, notice in verse 12, is built upon a foundation of forgiveness. The foundation of forgiveness because they all have been forgiven. Because they have all been forgiven. That because, that for, starting verse 12, is also in the Jeremiah text. God will put his law at our hearts and our minds. God will be our God, will be his people. We shall all know God because... God is able to do that and not destroy us because of the forgiveness we have in the new covenant. It's built upon that foundation because they have all been forgiven. And notice again, it's not a transformation of character and a transformation of heart and a transformation of mind persevered in leads to forgiveness. It's built upon a foundation of forgiveness. Or to use the analogy, the agricultural analogy, the root and the fruit. The changed heart, the changed mind, the new relationship, the knowledge of God is because he has forgiven us. Full and abundant mercy. By the way, this language here, 
I'll be merciful towards our iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. Links all the way back again. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. God, by the way, can't forget our sins. He promises not to remember them. An omniscient God can't forget anything. What he can do is promise, I will not bring them to mind against you. I will never bring the record of your sins before my mind as some way of, of stirring up wrath against you. He promises not to remember them. This, this is the basis of the new covenant. And again, think of the distinction. The, the, the Mosaic law, apart from the day of atonement and the scapegoat, had no blanket sacrifices for sins. That's why when David kills a man, like what, what sacrifice do you offer to, to atone for murder? There's no sacrifice in the Mosaic law to atone for murder. That's what David says in Psalm 50. Burnt offerings and sacrifices you have not desired, else I would give them. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. There's no sacrifice David can turn to in Leviticus for adultery and murder. The Mosaic law dealt with sins, but you were constantly having to keep it up. In, in some sense, the sacrificial system is more like our ongoing confessions of, prayer, of sin. And here, this new covenant is founded upon a complete and total amnesty and forgiveness. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And again, this is being spoken in the first instance to a people who are about to be kicked out of the land they are in, taken into slavery and exile because God has kept a record of their sins. Jeremiah has been re reminding them of the record of their sins. So think of the import of that news no longer keeping record, no longer remembering our sins. Turn briefly to Hebrews 10 before our closing song, which we will sing. just want to show you where we're going to be going next week. The author of Hebrews will cite this passage one more time, as Jeremiah 31 in chapter 10, where he makes the point that I'm saying here explicitly, that this covenant is made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. These great blessings that you and I can be confident we will persevere, not because we're determined, not because we've got grit, but because the new covenant contains within it the things it requires, faith and perseverance, a new heart, a new mind. But it was all made possible by the death of Christ. Just, just look briefly at Hebrews 10, 12 to 18. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of, the, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. Christ has made a sufficient atonement. That, that is what we're celebrating when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus came not only to bear our iniquity, not only to bear our sins, 
but to acquire for us a covenant that gives us the grace we need to keep it. Gives us new hearts and new minds. Guarantees each and every member of the covenant, you can know God. I'm going to call the worship team up now, but while they come up, I would be remiss to not make it clear to you, this covenant is on the table for you here today if you would have it. If you would have God be your God and be his people. If you would have your sins forgiven. If you would have a new heart with God's law written on it. It is yours in Christ Jesus if you will turn to him in faith. If you will turn to him from your rebellion and trust him. There is a better covenant with a better mediator purchased by a better sacrifice.